0: Things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. And thank you, team, as always, for leading us. Appreciate you guys and the work you put in to helping us sing well to God. I want to read this morning as we begin the passage of scripture we will be focusing on shortly. It's from Matthew chapter 5. So if you have a Bible with you uh, of either the paper or digital variety, uh, I would encourage you to open your. Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, going to read the first 11 verses this morning. The Bible says, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word for us this morning. And it represents for us the start of a new series. We just wrapped up um, a walk through the New Testament book of Philippians last Sunday. Jordan wrapped that up for us. Um, A powerful and compelling picture of joy because Christ is exalted in the midst of whatever my life circumstances are that God is calling us to. Um, I personally was quite moved and challenged in a couple places throughout the course of that series. I hope you were too. Uh, We are beginning this morning a whole new section of the Bible. We're shifting gears, moving back to the Gospels, and looking at a passage of scripture that is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. It is a, a set of teachings that Jesus gave up on, as we just read, a mountainside, probably a flat place on a mountainside where a crowd could gather around him and he could address them, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And as we begin this, I want to ask, um, ask us to reflect on a question, and the question is simply this. Um, in your life, maybe think back to when you were younger and you were thinking about what it was going to be like to be an adult. Maybe some of you are still in that boat <laughs> or you're fast becoming an adult. Um, when you were a kid, what was your view of what a winner looks like? What's a winner? What are the people that like, you look up to uh, or aspire to be? Uh, was it somebody who makes it big in business, has the nice car, the success? Somebody um, who is a powerful academic, had the prof- professor role and uh, would get to, you know, whatever, go on the local news stations and have their opinion asked because they were an expert, you know. Well, that's somebody who's really got it together. Uh, was it the, um, the all-star athlete? Do you want to be an astronaut? I mean, what was it for you, right? <laughs> who are the real big winners? Maybe even the people that you thought, like, I'd love to be that or I don't think I ever could be that, but boy, wouldn't that be awesome. Maybe it was just something a little less grandiose. Maybe it was just something other than what you grew up with. A lot of us experience that, you know. I was poor. I hated being poor. When I grow up, I'm going to have a family. I'm going to make enough money so that my kids can have opportunities I didn't have. (laughs) That's a winner. Somebody who has enough money, even if they're not maybe fabulously wealthy, they at least have enough money to live in a nice place and take decent vacations and have opportunities and experiences that perhaps you didn't have growing up. Or maybe it's simply... I'd love to grow up and just, like, stay married, unlike my parents. Maybe winners are people that have intact homes or be a successful family man or woman. I mean, it could be almost anything. So for you, like, what was a winner? Someone who what? What? We probably all had those pictures in our minds. Um, when I was a kid, I remember being really, really little, like maybe, I don't know, five, six probably. I was pretty young. And I was always fascinated by the fact that my dad, we could get in the car as, as a family and drive somewhere, and my dad would always know where to go. Like, that amazed me. And, and that was before these things were around, you know? There was like no in-dash GPS. My grandparents lived in a town... took us like an hour and a half, almost two hours to drive there. And so we'd like, you know, we'd get in the car to go visit Grandma and Grandpa. And like I'd be in the back seat and we'd be passing all these intersections, all these stoplights. Some of them he would just ignore. Others he would turn on. You jump on a freeway. You're ignoring all these on and off ramps. And then others you're taking. And then you're on this other freeway. And then pretty soon you're on this other freeway. And eventually I remember sitting in the back seat like going, there's all of these like roads. How does my dad know which ones to take? It was amazing to me. And it kind of, I mean, it's kind of silly looking back, but I remember that. I remembered thinking that for that and probably some other reasons, that like a successful man is somebody who always knows where he's going. Amen? That's why my wife married me, right? She's looking for a guy that never needed to ask for directions. Guys, it's not that I'm not willing to. <laughs> I just don't need to because I've got one of these. So I just put my phone up on my dashboard, and I don't have to ask for directions. That's awesome. (laughs) But seriously, like, there was always this idea in my mind that a successful man is a guy who kind of knows what to do. My dad's not even, uh, like, a real handy person, but somehow it sort of expanded. I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if I knew how to, like, change oil or change a clutch? I didn't really grow up in a mechanical family, so I learned how to do that stuff. And, like, to me, that was part of what it meant to be successful. You ideally want to have something to, uh, some sort of answer And I feel like a little bit of a failure if my family is facing a situation where we're like, I'm not really sure what to do and I feel like I'm supposed to have some answer for that. Or if our church is facing a situation people go like, hey, how come this is this way or what are we gonna do about that problem? And sometimes I'm like, oh, I'm not really sure. And then I immediately sort of start to feel like a failure inside. because I'm like, "I, I, I should have an answer for that, right? What does success look like for you? Well, I ask this question because our assumptions about success say a lot about our core values and what we really think is most important in life. And Jesus actually had a lot to say about our core values and what success looks like. In fact, that is the uh, focus of this perhaps best known and most influential sermon ever preached recorded in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. So here's what we're going to do today. I actually kind of have, it's a little bit of a different Sunday because we're starting a whole new series. If you've been around Harvest for a while, you're probably a little more familiar with this, but I kind of want to do two mini-sermons today rather than just one. We're going to spend the first maybe half our time just kind of doing a little bit of overview of what these three chapters are. How are we to understand the Sermon on the Mount? We're just going to lay out a couple of um, basic observations and principles that will help frame the Sermon on the Mount for us, the things that we'll keep coming back to over and over again throughout this series because while the content of what Jesus teaches in this passage, most of it is really straightforward. Like, it's not, it's not difficult stuff to interpret or figure out what he means. There's not a lot of, you know, deep philosophy or real nuanced stuff. It's pretty straightforward. And yet, at the same time, when you take it as a whole, um, what you're supposed to do with these three chapters is actually pretty confusing. In fact, if you go study this kind of stuff and how the Sermon on the Mount has been approached by theologians and Bible scholars over the the last, you know, several centuries, there's seven or eight major ways people have understood the basic thrust of the Sermon on the Mount, and they can't all be right. And so framing it is important so that we don't misunderstand what is ultimately a pretty straightforward message. Uh, The second part, we're going to start into this passage that we just read um, and kind of introduce and get involved uh, in the first Uh, Paragraph of the Sermon on the Mount. So that's a little bit about where we're headed. To kind of overview where we're going and frame it, I just want to share basically three observations about the Sermon on the Mount that I think will help us get get familiar with it right away, kind of get used to what to expect. If these chapters are newer to you, if you're not super familiar with them, this will be very helpful in kind of lining it all up. It's sort of like the boxes that we're going to put all of this teaching in and, and kind of organize it. And for many of us who are familiar with a lot of the content here, I hope that this will clearly frame, or perhaps if necessary, reframe how you've understood Jesus' teachings uh, in these passages. Three simple um, things we want to talk about by overview. First of all, the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Secondly, the audience, which is always important, but extremely so in this case. Uh, Who is the original audience when Jesus was talking? And then lastly, what is its essential message? What is the summary message? So that's what we're going to look at for a few minutes. What is its context? Matthew's gospel. Uh, who is the audience? And what is the message? Just a couple brief words about each of those three points. First of all, it's context in Matthew's gospel. This is actually the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Um, Matthew wrote a gospel, the gospels are the story of the life and the teachings and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the four books that start the New Testament. Matthew is the very first one, the first book in the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry with this statement, very similar to Mark chapter 1, it's essentially the same message. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The day Jesus finally went public and started proclaiming and teaching, this was his message. This this was the essence of it. This is the bottom line of what he had to communicate to the world. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, is here, basically, that's what that means. In me, the kingdom of heaven has broken into the kingdom of this world, and so you need to repent. That was his message, condensed down as short and sweet as it could be. Now, you might notice that this is Matthew chapter 4, and we're saying that this was Jesus' first word. So what else was happening in Matthew up to this point? Knowing that helps us understand Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is the Sermon on the Mount. And essentially, we can summarize it pretty easily. The first few chapters of Matthew's gospel are presenting Jesus through his birth and his early life as God's long-promised messiah the savior who fulfilled all the old testament prophecies and everything that was said about the messiah so there's a couple chapters in matthew that kind of cover that sort of stuff they're basically saying jesus is the real deal now you get to chapter four and you finally hear what he said once he was an adult and he went public with his ministry and this is the message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand Uh, chapter four ends with jesus calling his first disciples Uh, four of them are listed by name Uh, In Matthew chapter 4, Peter and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John. There were probably also a few others at that point who were um, not necessarily named here in chapter 4, but they're called by chapter 5. So Jesus already now has a small group, perhaps up to all 12, but at least four uh, disciples. Those are people who have explicitly committed their lives to following him, leaving everything behind and banking everything on Jesus. It was a very um, hardcore, intensive commitment that these guys had made to him. And then chapter 4 ends with Jesus running around the countryside, teaching, and uh, in a way that was different than what people were used to, and then also performing miracles where there's like six sick people and he's healing them miraculously. And and all of this um, authoritative teaching and all of these supernatural miracles, which was not like any more normal back then than it is now, people are going like, whoa, what is this? What's going on here? Who is this guy? And so he's attracting a ton of attention. And that's how chapter 5 begins. So that's our context within Matthew's gospel. That leads us to the second question. Um, oh, I guess I should say to, to sum that up, I think we can understand the Sermon on the Mount in its most basic form. These three chapters, what they're trying to do, they're trying to unpack Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 for us. So like within the context of Matthew's gospel, that's what's happening. What does it mean to repent? And what does it mean that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? He gives us three chapters to explain that. Okay, so that's the context. Now the second question, who is he talking to? I'm going to say context, audience, and message. Who is the the audience? Who is he directly addressing? Well, we've already kind of seen um, a little bit of that. In fact, verse 1 of chapter 5 starts out. It says, "...seeing the crowds, Jesus went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to them, and he opened his mouth and taught them." Meaning, the disciples. So Jesus sees these crowds who are interested in his miracles and in his teachings, but they're not pledging, they have not yet pledged themselves to follow him. And then there's this much smaller group of disciples who have made this formal commitment to be his followers. And he sees the crowds, and he goes up on a place where everybody can uh, sit down and hear him. He gathers his disciples in front of him, and he sits down to teach, which is what they would have done in that culture back then. His disciples sit at his feet, ready to soak up his teachings, and the crowds all gather around so there's, there's kind of this two-tiered audience that's specifically called out here. Uh, and this is really important. The first tier is the very small group of disciples. Again, these men who had literally left everything, they had quit jobs, they had left family connections and relationships, they were on the move, they were um, living as kind of nomads following Jesus around without a real home. They'd given up a lot because they believed that he was God's savior. So they said, we're going to give our whole lives, we're going to build everything on your teachings and on who you are. We're giving, we're baking everything on you, Jesus. They were committed disciples. Those are the ones he is directly addressing in these three chapters. But the second tier around them is this much, much larger group of people, the crowds, at least hundreds of people, quite possibly a few thousand would have been entirely possible at this point. Uh, these are people who were interested in Jesus' miracles and his message. Um, they were fascinated by him. They were probably almost all Jewish, so they had some religious background in the Old Testament. They shared some common beliefs with Jesus and with the disciples. And they were definitely interested in what Jesus was saying and what they might get from him. I mean, after all, I heard that he's like healing people supernaturally and I've had this bum leg all my life. Maybe uh, (laughs) he'll put it right and I can like beat everybody and pick up basketball finally for the first time in my life. I mean, they were interested in a lot of what he had to offer. But the difference between the two groups is that the crowds were not yet people who had made any kind of commitment to Jesus personally. Um, they, were, they were certainly interested in him. They were willing to follow him and hear what he had to say and watch what he had to do and get some benefit from that. But they had made no commitment to him as their savior, no commitment to live for him. That's the difference between the two. Jesus is very aware of their presence. He chooses a spot where they can all sit down and hear what he's saying to his disciples. But this is most directly addressed to his disciples, people who had already committed themselves to Christ. Now, why is all this important? I think it's important just for this specific reason. I think it helps us avoid a pretty common mistake um, that it's easy to make when you're reading the Sermon on the Mount. Most of the stuff in these three chapters is really, really intensely practical stuff. It's like how to live your life, you know. Jesus talks about things like marriage and divorce. He talks about things like uh, lust and sexual attraction. He talks about things like um, whether or not we lie and and whether or not we're people of our word. He talks about things like our relationships and whether or not we forgive and reconcile. He talks about our religious practice, how we pray and and how we fast and how we give and serve. He, He addresses all of these very practical things in really stark black and white terms. And it's very easy to read that as, well, this is God's message to the entire world. Live this way, this way, this way, and this way, not... That way, that way, that way, and that way. And that's his message to everybody. Straighten up and fly right, clean up your life, and then maybe God will be happy with you and let you into heaven, right? But I think when we understand who he was addressing, which is clearly spelled out right there in the Bible, and I think it's for a reason, we understand that that's not how we're supposed to read this. Because all of Jesus' teachings about how you're supposed to live your life were directly addressed to his disciples. That is people who are already bound for heaven, because of Jesus, not because they straightened up and flew right. You see the difference? He's saying, if you want to be part of my kingdom, if you want to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that means you're going to live a certain way. But he's addressing that to people who have already repented and said, yes, I'm in. And I'm banking on you, Jesus, to get me to heaven. So these are his instructions to those who are his followers. Now he says it in the presence of others who are interested in him as sort of a prophetic announcement that God's kingdom has come into this world and also an invitation to repent and become one of his disciples. So he's talking to them, he wants the crowds to hear. And so we can read the Sermon on the Mount as essentially a sketch of what it means to live in God's kingdom. There's these two kingdoms, and they've come into this world. That's where we're getting the imagery that we're using for this sermon series. Two worlds are colliding. It is the kingdom of this world, as the Bible puts it, and the kingdom of heaven. That's the biblical language for it. God's world and man's world, which used to be one and the same, but because of our sin, we rejected God. We now live separately from him, and there's a great chasm between the two. And when Jesus shows up and announces the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he means is, hey, because I'm on the scene, God's world is breaking into your world because I am God in human flesh. These two worlds are now colliding. The collision is messy. And that's why he gives us instructions of how to live in it. So, a little bit on its um, context, a little bit on its audience, just one brief summary of, like, what is the whole thing about? What's the bottom line? Before we even start, what's the bottom line of all three of these chapters? What's the message? Here's one important thing to notice about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the first three paragraphs, Matthew chapter five, verse two down to uh, verse twenty. Those are kind of first three paragraphs. We're going to take one of those paragraphs each over the next three Sundays, starting today, and then the next two Sundays after this. Those three are significantly different, qualitatively different than everything else that follows. They are very conceptual. Um, there's a lot of truth. There's a lot of principle stuff in those first three paragraphs. These are the truths you need to keep in mind. Now everything from Matthew chapter 5 verse 21 on through the rest of chapter 7 is intensely practical. Do this, don't do that, live this way, don't live that way. In real life with this kind of stuff that we all deal with, here's how you're to think about it. Now, noticing that difference, the first three are really conceptual, the rest of it is very, very practical, gives us a pretty big clue about what Jesus is trying to do here. These first three weeks, he's essentially going to, these first three Sundays that we're looking at, he's essentially giving us the framework for understanding what it means to live as a citizen of his kingdom. And then for the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he applies it. (laughs) He applies it. So if you do these three things in your marriage, it looks like this. If you do these three things with your money, it looks like this. If you do these three things in your relationships, it looks like this. If you do these three things in your prayer life, it looks like this. Do you see the pattern? So knowing that right away really helps us. We've got three essential principles in these paragraphs that are sort of the foundation. It's like a three-legged stool, and then everything else is kind of piled on top of that stool, but these three legs hold it up. What are those three legs? Well, the paragraph that we just saw, and we'll look at in just a moment here, is the idea that there are two completely distinct worlds, and they are in collision. We'll talk about that just a little bit more in a moment. But it's the call to recognize as a Christian that there are always two worlds operating. They're colliding. It's messy, but they're both there and they're both real. Second principle is to know that Jesus is the key to navigating that messy collision. He himself is the key to navigating that messy collision. Got myself a little behind there. There we go. And then lastly... The purpose of a disciple of Christ is to represent one world while living in the other. So that's what he talks about. There's a collision of worlds. He is the key to understanding that. And as disciples, we represent one world to the other. That's what frames the Sermon on the Mount. And then he applies that to everything else in life. So, bottom line, what is the message of the Sermon on the Mount? Here's here's my best stab at it right now. You might be able to do better. I might do better as we go through it and I learn more, but I think this is a pretty good kind of summary of what we're getting at here. Christ himself is the key to living as a faithful disciple when two worlds collide. If you read these three chapters and you take away that, you've probably got the message. Now that gets unpacked and applied to lots and lots of different areas of life, but that's the essential message. Christ himself is the key to living as a faithful disciple. Remember, this is addressed to those who have formally and publicly pledged themselves to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior when these two worlds collide. It's helpful to understand that because, you know, we talked about these two tiers of of audience back in Jesus' day, but but those those two groups of people are not at all unique to the first century or to the Middle East where this was originally delivered. It's still true today. There are those of us, very likely in this room, who have overtly and explicitly professed faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. There's been a conscious decision—the Bible would just say simply, you're a (laughs) Christian— There's been a conscious decision to respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. I've, I've left my old life aside. I have embraced the truth of Jesus Christ as God's son and the only way to eternal life, and I have accepted his death as the payment for my sins on my behalf and pledged myself to follow him as my savior and my king. If that's you, if you can look back on your life and say, I have made that decision, it's been conscious, it's been deliberate, and I'm far from perfect, but I am seeking to live that out, then you're a Christian or in the in the language of the Gospels, you're a disciple. There's also a lot of us who are very interested in spiritual things, Uh, maybe willing to come to church and participate, to hear what God has to say and to benefit from some of the reality of a Gospel-shaped community, just like the crowds were in Jesus' day. And just like Jesus welcomed in those crowds, we're delighted to welcome anybody here at Harvest Community Church that wants to come and sit and listen and connect with us and hear from God. We're so glad you are here, no matter where you're at on that spectrum. But apart from a conscious commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're not yet what the Bible would call a disciple or a Christian. The Sermon on the Mount addresses both groups. To Christians, it says, this is what it means to represent me in this collision of worlds. And if we're part of the larger crowd who's interested, but we're still trying to figure out who Jesus is or where I stand in relation to him, the Sermon on the Mount is a prophetic announcement that God's world is invading our world, and it is an invitation and command to repent and become a follower of his we can really kind of boil all this down with kind of a key question that is the same idea but maybe on a much more personal level and again we'll keep coming back to this over and over and over again it's the question here on the bottom of the screen his world is invading our world that's the truth that's out there so now how does that shape my world personally my value system, the way I live my life. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is designed to answer in multiple aspects of life. So with that kind of overview, hopefully that helps frame it for us. This is God trying to say two worlds are colliding, and if you're one of my followers, you have a task to represent me. Let's talk about what that means. We're gonna talk about the value systems of these two worlds and how you live for the kingdom of heaven while you're walking on the kingdom of the earth. What's that mean and what's that? look like. That's what we're after. So with that in mind, let's end the first mini-sermon and spend the rest of our time on the second one, (laughs) okay? Let's take a look at this first paragraph, this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wants to tell his disciples what it means um, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and they're supposed to repent, and he's got this big lofty goal to communicate this message. So how's he going to start? Where's he going to begin? Interestingly, he begins with a list of short, um, catchy kind of pithy statements uh, that we have come to know as the Beatitudes. Maybe even there's a subheading in some of your Bibles that have that word Beatitudes. That just comes from a Latin word and it means blessed because each one of the statements begins with the word blessed. So that's why we call them Beatitudes. There's nothing fancy there. But they're, they're the blessed statements, the eight blessed They're these short, kind of pithy, quick statements that Jesus deliberately does not unpack in detail that are designed to describe the value system of the kingdom of heaven as compared to the value system of the kingdom of this earth. And so you see his point with the Beatitudes. He's trying to show us there's two completely different kingdoms here, and they're colliding, but they're totally different. They do not mesh well. They have opposite value systems. Now, because these statements are so short, we're not going to take the time today, and our time is short, we're certainly not going to take the time today to unpack each one of them at length. Although you could do that, um, and that's been done before. A lot of preachers have preached eight sermons on the eight Beatitudes. I've considered it before, and I may do it someday. Um, We're not going to do that today, and it's it's not necessarily wrong to do that. It can be a profitable and fruitful study. But I think by the way they're presented, they deliberately follow the same pattern, that's on purpose, to catch our attention and kind of draw us into the rhythm, and they're, they're deliberately short, and Jesus deliberately doesn't comment on them, it's because he doesn't so much primarily want us to take them one at a time. Although, again, that's a legitimate thing to do. I don't think that's the main idea. The main idea is he wants us to feel the full force of all eight of them together. When you add these kind of short, staccato bursts of values together, what kind of a world does that paint? What kind of a value system Does that represent, and how does that compare to the value system we're used to? And so that's how we're going to look at them. I'm just going to read through these in just a moment, um, pretty briefly, with only a a minimal amount of explanation so we know what it's talking about, but not really unpack them at all, because we primarily want to look at the full force of all eight of these short statements together, the way that they're given to us. And I think what we'll see is they are short um, statements designed to kind of shock the system to first-century religious people. Remember, we had this two-tiered group that Jesus is talking to, committed disciples and larger crowds, but both of them were coming from a largely Jewish background. That meant they they were familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, They were probably almost all ethnically Jewish, and part of what that meant is that you saw yourself as belonging to the group that's known as God's people. We're all already God's people, so they thought. And they realized they were living in a world that at that time was controlled by the Roman Empire, which was explicitly not Jewish (laughs) and had nothing to do with the God of the Bible. And so he's talking to a group of people, both tiers of his audience, who already think that they're on God's side, they're God's people, and they represent God in a foreign world. And he comes at them with these short statements, I think in large part to kind of say, you think you're God's people living for God's world, but you're not. You're not. How do you get somebody who is deeply steeped in their religious teachings and deeply committed to the principles of their religion to understand that they are not really representing God when that violates everything that they understand about themselves? I think you have to shock the system a little bit, and that's precisely what Jesus does. He throws out a value system that is so contrary to their value system, and he says, this is God's value system, and it's not the one you're living, to help them realize you may not be living out the values of God just because you are a religious person. Let's look at what God's world is and compare it with our world. And so by giving us these eight statements, he gives us kind of a short, uh, impactful picture of uh, a value system that is completely upside down from the perspective of people in a first century Middle Eastern context, also probably a 21st century Western context, completely upside down. Or are they actually right side up? That's part of the shock value. Jesus addresses some things that seem so obvious to people, like, how could you think otherwise? And he says, oh, I can think otherwise. In fact, I'm telling you the exact opposite is true. Just to kind of make us go, what? It's upside down. God's value system is totally upside down as compared with that of this world, or maybe it's this world's value system that is so upside down but we've gotten used to it so we think of it as right side up because it's the only world we've ever known. Some of you may be familiar if you've ever studied like you know, light refraction in your high school physics classes or whatever. Um, one of the things, the illustrations that always stuck with me, in part because I have contact lenses and I've always needed um, corrective lenses for my vision, is the idea that the human eye, some of you probably know this, uh, it's just a simple principle of physics, often when light passes through a prism or a lens, it gets inverted. So, when you're seeing an image like this goofy cartoon guy, I don't know where he came from, that's all I could find on Google, that's all I had time to search for, anyway, um... Your your eye, sort of represented by that that little sphere off on the left there, is is looking at the picture of a person. Um, the image that's projected onto the back of your retina, where your brain picks up the signal, uh, is actually inverted. It's upside down. If you think of the back of your eyeball as a movie screen and the light going in your eye as a projector, the projection is actually hitting the back of your eye. It's hitting the projection screen, and it's upside down. So you see his head at the bottom and his feet at the top. That's that's the actual light image that hits the back of our eyes, but we don't see upside down we see right side up why is that because our brains take the light image and as our brains process it they've just become accustomed to kind of flipping the image they don't it's not physically flipped over the light doesn't change but our brain processes the signals and it says oh that's down and that's up and so it just automatically flips it for us so right now if, if you're to look at me uh, on this stage on the back of your eyeball you know the ceiling and the lights up there are on the bottom and the stage down here in my shoes are up on the top and without even realizing it, your brain is flipping that around because you know where up is and you know where down is, and the brain is always orienting itself you know, in space. It's just kind of how we're wired. And they've done these really bizarre experiments. Um, I'm not sure who would agree to do this, but some people that are into this sort of thing have actually done these experience experiments where they will wear glasses that flip the image again, so now you're seeing upside down, and they will leave those glasses on for days at a time. And you can actually... Google this and read about some of these experiments. They're kind of interesting. And at first, they're like totally disoriented. They're just like, whoa, the floor is up there and the ceiling's down there. And, you know, left is right and right is left. And it's completely disorienting. You know, they can't even walk across a room without running into tables and tripping over chairs because their brain is just going like, whoa, this is crazy. And you know, they can't pour a glass of water from a pitcher. I mean, just simple things because they're just totally, their, their sense of where they are in space is just totally thrown off. But the interesting thing is, if you leave the glasses on long enough, many people have reported that their brain starts to adjust to it. I think they still technically are seeing upside down, but the brain starts to learn how to process this, and it starts to get used to it. Oh, left isn't right anymore, left is left. (laughs) right is left, left is right, and and, and you kind of um, adjust to that to the point where after one, one of the summaries that I read of these experiments, like after like seven or eight days, a person who before couldn't even walk across the room, but they literally left the glasses on for seven or eight days, they're able to like get on a bicycle and ride down a city street through traffic, seeing the whole world upside down and not hitting anything because the brain has adjusted to what it's really seeing. And then you take the glasses off and your brain is confused again. And it takes several more days to kind of like readjust to seeing things right side up again. That's actually a pretty good illustration of what I think Jesus is doing here. He's saying there's a value system that is totally upside down, but you've gotten used to thinking of it as right side up. And so you're very comfortable in that value system. You don't even think about it. You don't even notice it. And to shock our systems, he like puts on a set of glasses that flips everything upside down and it's almost disorienting at first. That's what these short staccato beatitudes are designed to do. They're designed to make us go like, what? Really? Did he just say that? That doesn't make any sense. And I think what he's saying is, have I got your attention now? There's two worlds, and they're colliding. So, how does he paint the value system of God's kingdom? (laughs) Each statement begins with the word blessed. Let's take a brief look at them. Um, The interesting thing about the word blessed is that it really kind of has this idea of congratulations. Congratulations. That's, that's what the word means here. It's, it's like people who, people who win at life. Th- these are the people who are blessed. These are the people that you should be jealous of. <laughs> these are the people who should be congratulated because they've won. They're happy because they've succeeded. It's probably a little bit slangy to say it, but these are life's winners. That's kind of the idea here. And that's why I asked us at the beginning what it was we assumed a winner looked like. Because that's what Jesus is asking his hearers to do here. What does a winner at life look like? Who are the kind of people you should look up to, you should admire, you should be jealous of, you should congratulate, good job, because you've done it, I hope I can be like you. He says, let me tell you, they're the kind of people who, verse three, are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual poverty, somebody who's willing to own the fact that that he or she brings absolutely nothing to the table when it comes to God, or even other people for that matter. Somebody who deliberately thinks not highly of themselves. The contrast would be what we might say is the self-made man. Uh, Somebody who's smug and confident in his or her own ability or worth. I feel good about who I am because I've gotten a good job. I finished college. I set goals and achieved them. I stayed married. I had children. I, whatever it was that I had, and other people haven't, and that's why I feel good about myself because I've succeeded. He says, no, no, no. Actually, those aren't the winners. Blessed are those who know they ain't got nothing. And they own it. They embrace it. And just one comment on this that will sort of frame the rest of them that we'll move through more quickly. In churches, we often feel that the people around us have it all together. You know, like maybe my wife and I really aren't doing so good, but I look around me and I see all of you with your perfect marriages. (laughs) But we think that, don't we? We think that. I, people look like they're happy. They look like they're healthy. They look like they're successful and I'm trying to pursue God and I'm doing the best I can but I just don't have what they have. And we can start to feel inferior. Maybe because it's, uh, it's because I got a divorce in my past and I look around people at, at, at people who don't. Maybe it's because no matter how hard I work, I can't get ahead. and I look around at people who are making a lot of money and taking a lot of nice vacations and their Facebook pages look way cooler than mine. I mean, it could be a hundred things, right? But you get this like inferiority thing going on. Well, quick sidelight, here's one secret. Nobody's got it all together. <laughs> Nobody's got it all together. Some of you, like the only time you ever really see or interact with me is when I'm preaching like right now. and like, I've got this well thought through outline and it's all clear and concise and it's, it's really well stated because I've had all week to prepare it and praise God. And then, you know, you don't see when I go home and I spend more time on my phone than I should with my wife because I'm selfish, or I treat my son or my daughter in a way that's snappy and irritable when they didn't deserve it. But here's the other thing, even though the truth is nobody has it all together, there's a bigger point here that Jesus is making. Even if they did have it all together, actually even if they did have it all together, they would be far worse off than you who is a mess. Isn't that crazy? Get the first shock to the system, like did he really say that? Yes. That is exactly what he is saying because you know you're a mess and so that frees you to come to God and say, Jesus, help me. The guy who's got it all together doesn't need Jesus and so he's going to say all the right things but he doesn't really need to rely on Jesus and it pulls him further away. Oh, no, no, no. You want to congratulate the people who are a mess and they know it because they're the ones that are going to be in eternity, in heaven for all eternity. You see the upside down value system. It goes on. Blessed are those who mourn. It just simply means grief. Grief. could be grief caused by loss, grief caused by my own sin, grief caused by other people's sin. He doesn't specify. If you're mourning, if you're hurting in life, he says, blessed are you. The contrast being when everything's going well. There's no major problems in my life. Everybody's healthy. Everybody's happy. I'm achieving my goals. Life's good. Those are the winners, right? Jesus says, nope, loser. You want to congratulate. You want to envy the people whose lives are a mess. Why? Because Our self-sufficiency often causes causes us to not lean fully on God, pulling us away from Him. But the mourners shall be comforted. They will rely on Christ and experience the depth of His joy in a way that people who haven't had a lot of pain in their lives never really do, because we just don't need it. Blessed are the meek, meaning the humble, the non-aggressive. That's what that means. They're the ones who will have it all in the end. Now, there's a bit of countercultural wisdom for you. The contrast here would be those who are the loudest, those who are the strongest, those who are the (laughs) go-getters, the people who want to make something of themselves. They set goals, and they get after it, and they achieve, and those are the winners, and they succeed. Jesus says, loser. What? Did he really just say that? Yep. Blessed is the non-aggressive and the humble. Why? because they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger for righteousness instead of all the other things we hunger for in life. Adventure, being well thought of, being pretty, being rich, being in a large happy family, being in the best neighborhood, whatever it is. He says, if you're hungering and thirsting for that, eh, sorry, you may even get it all, but the problem is it's fleeting, it's fleeting. It can go away at any time. But blessed are those who actually hunger and thirst for righteousness because due to me and my role in your life, I can give it to you and it'll never be taken away. My righteousness imputed to you. And the happy person is the one who's truly had his thirst satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, meaning pretty much what it means. Somebody's generous and forgiving, uh, compassionate toward those who, who do not deserve it because such people will receive mercy from God leading to heaven. The contrast here would be um, when I choose to hold others to unyielding standards. I'll love you as long as you do right by me, but the minute like you're turning your back on me or letting me down or taking advantage of me, I'm done with you. Right? You're dead to me. Um, you don't live up to my personal expectations. You judge people. You're done with them who don't live up to those standards. People say, you got to take care of yourself. Well, there's some interesting wisdom in like how boundaries are supposed to work in relationships. That's worth another conversation at another day. But you know what Jesus is saying here? The winners are not the people that make sure everybody else does what they're supposed to do around them. The winners are the mercy givers. You don't deserve this, but I'm going to love you anyway. Why? Because that's how God treated us. Could you imagine if God treated us according to like our standards of what we should do? We would all be dead. So blessed are the merciful. It's a totally upside-down value system. Blessed are the pure in heart, meaning single-minded devotion to God and a pursuit of his agenda, not not divided loyalties, kind of living some for God and some for me, this kind of compartmentalized Christianity thing that is so easy for all of us, even myself as a vocational pastor, to get into. I have my Bible reading times and my church attending times, but then I have my work world and it operates according to different principles and I just accommodate myself to whatever world I'm in. So I'm not wholly following God. It's kind of this uh, mismatch of of different loyalties and divided expectations and priorities. Half-hearted spirituality doesn't lead to eternal life. Blessed are those who are all in. Um, We often tend to think of them as kind of crazies, zealots fundamentalists people that actually take the principles of the bible seriously in every area of life jesus says no they're not crazy they're the ones that win in the end blessed are the peacemakers two more meaning just what it says somebody who who works to reconcile others to god and to one another God is a reconciler, and those who likely, likewise do that will be called sons of God. They're part of his family. They've, they've inherited him. They're, they're made in his image. That's who he is. The contrast would be a person who contributes to strife and discord around himself or herself. You know, nursing grudges, that kind of thing. Hanging on to Bitterness. You know, what is the net effect of my life on the relationships around me? Do I generally tend to pull people toward reconciliation? Or do I generally tend to contribute to everybody being divided? That's the idea here. The winner is those, the, the, the person who lays himself down to make peace. And lastly, blessed are those who are persecuted for Jesus. Because all this stuff that I've already said seems so Backwards. Now, let me just pause here for a moment and, and say, like, this could just be me. I could be totally wrong about this. <laughs> um, so take this with a grain of salt. But I have to wonder at this point what the crowds are doing. You know, Blessed are the, the, the meek and blessed are the, the, the poor in spirit. And I can imagine some of the, like, <sighs> what the, you know, the, the gasps and the <laughs> chuckles and the, what did he really just <laughs> And here's the disciples at his feet drinking it all up. Who are these people? What are they? What? It have been a little bit of persecution right there, pretty light stuff, but nonetheless. And Jesus is like, hey, you hear all that? Blessed are you when people revile you because you believe in a kingdom that looks upside down to them. The contrast would be the need that we all feel to be seen by others as successful and respectable, to be affirmed by friends, family, colleagues, and society. Here's the common denominator in all this. The values of God's kingdom are often opposite completely opposite the values of this world that's the point he's starting with there are two worlds they are totally opposite and they are colliding that's what he means when he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand now there's two other very important pieces to this introduction and we're going to get to them next sunday and the following sunday so we've got to end right now (laughs) when it's like uh, we're just going to leave us hanging but Come back next Sunday, okay? There's my big teaser. (laughs) We'll finish this out. Let, Let me wrap this introduction to the Sermon on the Mount up this way. The first point Jesus makes to his disciples is that there are these two worlds and their respective value systems are contrary. To those crowds that were interested in his message but were not committed to him yet, the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to rethink the value system that shaped them up until now. And friends, if that's where you're at this morning, if you're like, I'm, I'm interested like, in God, I'm, I'm happy to come to church and read the Bible, but I'm not yet ready to go all in and say Jesus is the Son of God and He died for our sins and rose from the dead and I'm going to live my whole life for Jesus. If I'm not at that point yet, hey, that's great. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation for you to rethink the value system that has shaped you up until now and to find life in humbling yourself before the God-man, Savior-King, Jesus Christ. And he's going to explain what his world is like in the call to repent. To the disciples, that's to the crowds, to us disciples, especially those of us of the more self-sufficient variety, and I think that's really who he was dealing with, people that, that, that knew their Bibles and were regular churchgoers and consider ourselves uh, pretty committed Christians and maybe have been for a long time. The Sermon on the Mount, I think, is a deliberate gut punch. It's just a jab right to the chin, <clears throat> snap the head back, and make you go, whoa, what just happened? Did Jesus just hit me? Metaphorically. Yeah. It's, it's a deliberate, in-your-face, shock To the system to try to get us to realize we are so self-sufficient because we're religious you see you can become self-sufficient by being non-religious and saying I don't need God at all and I'm not interested in God and that's really obvious but there's a more subtle and every bit as deadly form of self-sufficiency that's a religious variety that says I do care about God and I do pay attention to everything he says and I live it. So, therefore, I'm still good with me. And Jesus says that's going to kill you. And so, he wants to take those self sufficient religious people and shock their systems to say, You are not living it. And so, the Sermon on the Mount's pretty heavy stuff. <laughs> it's pretty heavy stuff designed to show the self sufficient religious person that he or she has not got it all together so that we can become poor in spirit. Lastly, to the disciple who knows they don't have it all together. What if that's me? I, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I feel like I'm a mess oh, the Sermon on the Mount can feel like such a weight. It's just telling me all the stuff I'm already failing at, and it's telling me to do even more. That's not what it is at all. It's actually a boon. It is a huge lift, because it says you may not feel like you're one of life's great winners, but there's a different and far better life that's there. And actually, of the three groups we've mentioned, the crowds, the self-sufficient disciple, the broken disciple, Of those three groups, the broken disciple is actually on the fastest track to being a winner in God's kingdom. Abandon yourself fully to Christ, celebrating and owning your inferiority authentically so that he can show up and magnify himself and his superiority gets shown through my inferiority. Let's pray. Father, wherever we come this morning and find ourselves in the midst of these pages, this um, perhaps best known and yet sometimes least understood sermon um, that you preach, Jesus. I pray that you would meet us with grace and truth um, where we're at. I pray for those of us uh, teaching throughout this series, um, that you would give us a faithfulness to accurately represent your words, to not back off uh, or pull the punches in any way of some of the very deep and hard things that you're going to bring up for us in these next few chapters but to know that you bring them up because you want to lead us to life, not beat us down into death. You want to lead us to live out the values of a kingdom, to repent for your kingdom is at hand. I pray for every one of us here where we need to repent, to give our lives more fully to you, to be less reliant on ourselves and more reliant on you, that you would lead us to that point, to be convinced deeply within our own hearts and our minds that you are our Savior, King, and that by living in total abandon with you, only there is life found. God, we as your church shout and delight to say yes, that's true, because you've said it, and we trust you. So receive our praise now as we shout and sing your glory, and thank you for the truths of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand with us, please?